During the season of Epiphany, Christine and I are preaching a sermon series called The Unnamed, in which we're looking at several of the biblical characters who never get a name in the story, but are very important to the narrative, including today, Pharaoh's cupbearer or wine steward. I'm not going to read the scripture lesson for you because it's too long. If I read it straight from the Bible, it would be about twice as long as this sermon. So I'm just going to tell the story to you in my own words, and then I'll tell you what it means, why it's God's word for us today, and then we'll be finished. Okay, you with me? You already know the story anyway because you've seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat, which is not only brilliant, but also extremely faithful to the biblical narrative. So if you know that, you know this story. There's four things you need to know about Joseph. First of all, he's spoiled rotten. Secondly, he is way past confident, well on his way to cocky. Third, he's smarter than Elon Musk and just as irritating. And fourth, he is dangerously handsome. All four of these qualities will get Joseph into a pile of trouble before they finally make him the second most powerful potentate on the planet. So first of all, Joyce, Joseph is spoiled rotten. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And Father Jacob has no intention of hiding his favoritism for Joseph, including that famous technicolor coat. Joseph is spoiled rotten. Secondly, he is way smarter than his father and all 11 of his brothers, and he tells them so over and over and over again. And when the 11 brothers get tired of groveling in the dirt before this alpha male, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. So when Joseph gets to Egypt, he's supposed to be a slave. But remember, Joseph is the Jim Harbaugh of ancient Egypt. That is to say, he wins wherever he goes. You know what I mean? University of San Diego, Stanford, the 49ers. Even the Bears were winning for a while when Jim Harbaugh was quarterback here. He wins wherever, until he gets to Michigan, he wins wherever he goes. You can do what you like to Joseph. He will always end up on top. And so when Joseph gets to Egypt, he's supposed to be a slave, but almost instantly he becomes the COO of the entire estate of a rich, powerful Egyptian named Potiphar, who's one of the great characters in the Dreamcoat musical. I love what the Bible says about Potiphar, and I quote exactly, Potiphar cared about nothing except the food which he ate. Can you tell? Which means, among other things, that Potiphar neglects his wife. So, at Potiphar's house, Joseph gets swindled, and Potiphar's convinced that Joseph belongs in prison. And I can't tell you why Joseph goes to prison, because the story is too risque. Here, the Bible reads like one of those racy paperback novels you pick up at Costco. But if you really want to, to read the story, you can look at Genesis 39. So, Joseph falls from the pinnacle of Egyptian society to the pits. He ends up in prison. But remember, he's Jim Harbaugh. He wins wherever he goes. As soon as he gets there, the jailer puts Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners including Pharaoh's own baker and sommelier, who have both fallen out of Pharaoh's good graces and ended up in prison. And so both these guys have a troubling dream. And remember, Joseph is way past confident on his way to cocky. He thinks he can do anything. He tells these guys he can tell them what their dreams mean. As for the baker, 
Joseph says, your dream is not good news. In fact, it's a nightmare. Your dream says that you will be dead in three days. And he's right. As for the sommelier, that's good news. Joseph says, in three days, you'll be restored to your old job next to Pharaoh's lavish table. And so before the sommelier goes back to the palace, Joseph asks him for a letter of reference. Put in a good word for me, says Joseph, to the sommelier. Tell Pharaoh that I am a stag's leap, Napa Valley, Cabernet Sauvignon, because I am. And the sommelier agrees to this arrangement, but then when he gets to the palace, he instantly forgets about Joseph, who languishes for two more years in jail. Until... Pharaoh has his own troubling dream, which jogs the sommelier's memory, so they haul Joseph to the palace so that Joseph can interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And Joseph tells the Pharaoh that the Pharaoh's dream means that Egypt will face seven fat years followed by seven lean years. That is, seven years of abundant harvest followed by seven years of famine. And then... Joseph, Joseph's coup de grace. Joseph convinces the Pharaoh, the king in the play, Elvis, get it? Joseph convinces the king that the king needs a talented right hand to manage the harvest so that Egypt will use the seven fat years to get through the seven lean years. And voila, Joseph becomes the Pharaoh's Secretary of Agriculture. And ends up saving not just Egypt from hunger and death, but the entire world, including his own family back home in Palestine. So, that's Joseph's story. Now, what does it mean? Well, here's what it means. You notice in the story that only two figures, two characters get a name. Joseph and Potiphar get names. The rest of the people don't get a name in the story. Not Potiphar's wife, not the jailer, not the baker, not the sommelier, not even Pharaoh himself. Although if we're right in our guess that Joseph lived 1,800 years before Jesus, that Pharaoh's name was Sestastrus III. Maybe you don't care, but I thought it was pretty cool to know that. But it's that sommelier that springs to my mind. You see, because unheralded, unnamed characters drift in and out of our lives momentarily, almost like ghosts, to put in a good word for us to get us where we need to be. They might forget us for two years. We might languish in prison for two years. But at the last moment or at the right moment, they will swoop in to save the day, to save our lives. There is a creative providence, a stealthy providence at work in our lives. That providence or fate or fortune or kismet or divine happenstance, whatever you want to call it, might be invisible or clandestine or hidden or disguised, but it's always there, lurking about the corners of our lives, removing the obstacles so that we can get where we need to be. So I want you to think about all of the sommeliers in your life who've put in a good word for you. Think about them and thank God for them. Because you might have done pretty well for yourself, thank you very much. You might be in the C-suite at Northern Trust. Good for you. You didn't get there by yourself. There's no such thing as a self-made person. 
Someone wrote us a letter of reference or gave us a job or taught us a skill or corrected our mistakes or told us what we wanted to do with our lives. And that's where we are, where we are today. This person might have slipped inconspicuously in and out of your life momentarily like a ghost. He was only there for a nanosecond. But in that nanosecond, he made all the difference in the world. You might not even know his name. Some of us have been reading Walter Isaacson's latest book called The Code Breaker about Jennifer Doudna, the Cal Berkeley chemistry professor who developed the CRISPR gene editing technique. Dr. Doudna won the 2020 Nobel Prize in chemistry for her accomplishments in editing the human genome. When she was a young woman, a graduate student at Harvard, it was her professor Jack Shostak who turned her on to the wonders of RNA, this almost miraculous substance in all of life, all of earthly life. RNA. She spent the rest of her life studying RNA. So that was when she was a young woman. 30 years later, when she won the Nobel Prize, Jack Shostak said, the only thing better than winning a Nobel Prize is having your student win one. Yes. How's that for a healthy ego? The only thing better than winning a Nobel Prize is when your student wins one. Yes, because it's not just doing something, it's teaching something. That's how you change the world. He was her sommelier. In 1937, Theodore Geisel is walking down Madison Avenue in New York City. He's carrying a book manuscript and the drawings that go with it. He's just come from the office of of a book publisher who has rejected his book. This has happened for the 27th straight time to Mr. Geisel's book. And he's walking down Madison Avenue. He's going home to burn it. He's ready to give out. So he's walking down Madison Avenue and he bumps in accidentally into an old classmate he hasn't seen for 12 years since his Dartmouth days. And this Dartmouth classmate asks Mr. Geisel, what are you carrying And Ted says, I'm carrying a book no one wants to publish. I'm going home to burn it. And this Dartmouth classmate says, I publish books for a living. Come on up to my office. And the classmate ends up buying Mr. Geisel's book. Today, 85 years later, Dr. Seuss still sells 3.5 million books a year in the United States alone. He's been dead for 31 years. He has sold, since 1937, he has sold 600 million books. All because he runs into an old Dartmouth classmate on Madison Avenue. He once said, if I had been walking down the other side of the street that day, I'd be in the dry cleaning business right now. Dr. Seuss found his sommelier, and I hope you do too, maybe multiple times. I hope there's a stealthy providence at work in your life, scattering your your days and your years with benefactors who slip in 
and out of your life momentarily like a ghost, but who get you where you need to be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.